and abandoned. Appearing out of nowhere, this feeling of loneliness fell upon me and hit me with full force. I was completely unprepared for this. Although I was practicing in the meditation center with many other meditators, Burmese and foreign alike, I couldn't help feeling completely abandoned by everybody and everything. There I was standing on the edge of the stairs and this one thought kept going through my mind. Alone and abandoned in this vast world. It seemed as I had been separated from everybody, from everything. And it also seemed to me that there was not one single person on this planet who could know or understand what I was going through. It was an extremely painful moment, extremely painful experience, but at the same time, I, it revealed me a deep truth. If I wanted to become enlightened, I had to realize the truth for myself. Nobody else could do it for me. No matter how much guidance I got from my teacher, no matter how much encouragement and inspiration I got from the other meditators, in the end, I had to work out my own liberation. This insight hit me so strongly there, standing just uh, above the stairs, that tears started to flow down my cheeks. And instead of going back to my room, as I usually did after lunch, to have a shower, I just went straight to the meditation hall <coughs> and I sat down <coughs> and I sat down on my mat and I started to observe this feeling of loneliness and abandonment and the fact that I had to work out my own liberation. Gradually, the feeling of loneliness and abandonment uh, faded away and it gave way to a growing sense of trust in the Dhamma. During all the years of my previous practice, I had been experiencing small, very small insights which seemed to be in line with the Buddha's teaching. And even more important than that, there also seemed to be a growing sense of understanding, growing sense of contentment, in a way a growing sense of happiness. Therefore, I realized that all I could do was simply trust in the Dhamma and continue with the practice. Even if it seemed such a solitary path, there seemed no other option. 
Later on, I came across the Satipatthana Sutta, where it says in the beginning, because this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. The very beginning of this sentence, this is the direct path. Other translators earlier, they had also translated it as this is the only path or this is the sole way, meaning that it is an exclusive path. But in the context of this sutta, it should rather be understood, as Bhikkhunyana Mori pointed out, as a path that only goes in one direction. And this single path, which has no side tracks, it goes in this one direction of Nibbana. It's one goal and it goes directly straight away towards this goal, Nibbana. The side tracks, this can mean the jhanas, these states of unequaled bliss and happiness, which are a result of deep concentration. Persons who practice the jhanas, these states of deep concentration, can easily be trapped in these blissful states without making any further effort to abandon their defilements. And the commentary to the Satipatthana Sutta explains further that this is a way that has to be walked by oneself alone, without a companion. And when I read this statement, it immediately reminded me of that experience I had in Burma. So one has the statement that one has to walk this path alone without a companion. This is in no way contradictory to the statement that having good spiritual friends is the whole of um, is the whole noble life. Spiritual friends and teachers give us a tremendous support and encouragement on our spiritual path. But when it comes down to penetrate into the deepest truths of nature, we have to do it ourselves. We have to do it alone. Nobody else can do that for us. In that moment of the deepest realization, we cannot depend on the help of another person, but solely on the penetrating power of the Dhamma. <coughs> To bring about these moments of penetrating insights, we have to establish suitable conditions. 
for understanding, insights and wisdom to grow, we have to prepare the ground accordingly. Among the very many conditions that help to make our mind soft, yielding, pliable, collected, clear and receptive, this, there is seclusion. Seclusion can mean to live in a secluded place, away from people and away from sensual objects that cause desire and lust to arise. In the Sutta, the standard description for such places is such places as the forest, the root of a tree, a mountain, a ravine, a hillside, a hillside cave, a charnel ground, a jungle thicket, an open space, or a heap of straw. Seclusion can also mean the mental seclusion and detachment from sensual objects. So there is the seclusion of removing ourselves physically uh, away from people, away from the input of many sensual objects. And there is the mental seclusion when the mind is secluded from disturbing thoughts or defilements caused by um, the input of the by objects entering through the sense doors. As long as we live enmeshed in the spinning wheel of our ordinary daily lives, it is very difficult to bring about clarity and collectedness of the mind. And this is uh, necessary for penetrating insights to arise. Therefore, we have to remove ourselves physically from the busyness of ordinary life and from the constant and almost all-pervading bombardment uh, of sensual inputs. And as I mentioned before, at the time of the Buddha, this meant to go to a forest, to a cave, or to a jungle thicket. Nowadays, secluded places to practice meditation can be meditation centers, monasteries, or cabins, which are somewhere in a secluded place and suitable for practicing meditation. So when we leave home in order to practice meditation, it is very important that we have carefully organized everything before, before we leave home. Once on retreat, we shouldn't have to engage in sorting out things or attending to whatever business it might be. With the physical seclusion, by removing our bodies out of the busy world, we also should leave behind all our concerns or uh, such uh, worldly matters. 
when I went to Burma in order to meditate for what I thought maybe three or at the most six months, I kept writing letters to my many friends and to my family. Although letters took and still take quite a long time to get there or from there to get to family and friends, if they do at all, um, still I couldn't let go of this connection to the outside world. But then in the following year, I was still there, I hadn't left, and so I started to realize that each time when I got a letter and when I read it, it greatly shook my mind. Even if there was nothing shocking or greatly disturbing in the letter, but then for a day or so, my mind was much more restless because I, I, my mind was occupied with the content of the letter, just going over it or giving some commentary to it. And so therefore then, before the second Vasa started, Vasa is the three-month period during the rainy season, so then I decided not to read any letters for this period of Vasa, for the period of three months. Only for the letters from my parents, I made an exception. So then during these three months, whenever I got a letter, I just took it and put it into my cupboard to let them rest there. Once I had done this resolve not to read any letters, uh, it was quite easy just to put them away unread. The experience that I had before uh, of reading the letters and then after having read the letter, how tiring and um, how painful it was to bring the mind back into that calm and clear state that it was before reading the letter. So this uh, experience made it quite easy to put them away unread. And after the three months had passed, then I could clearly see the benefit of this greater degree of seclusion, seclusion from um, unnecessary sensual input. At the Buddha's time, the nuns and monks often went alone to such secluded places to practice meditation. At that time, it wasn't uh, customary that they would practice together in groups. And so as they were alone, they didn't have a companion to talk. So they naturally kept noble silence. Nowadays, when people go and practice meditation in meditation centers or monastery, it is essential that one keeps noble silence. Each time we talk, the mind is stirred up 
and then we need time and energy to calm it down again. If we talk now, every now and again, then the mind will have no opportunity to really settle down. My teacher, Chamye Sayado, puts great emphasis on noble silence because it is such an important tool for letting the mind settle and become calm and tranquil. Chamye Sayado uses to say, five minutes of talking can destroy the concentration of a whole day. And this is true. Once we have accessed a certain level of concentration, we can realize it for ourselves. In the beginning of the practice or in the beginning of a retreat, it might not be so obvious and might be more difficult to see because we can have the impression that talking a little bit here and a little bit there seems to be supporting our practice. As we engage in a little conversation, um, as trivial as it might be, we derive a sense of happiness or contentment or satisfaction from it. But then we do not see that doing that, we are just perpetuating old habits and deeply ingrained condition, uh, deeply ingrained conditioning. So then in this way, rather than benefiting our practice, talking actually becomes counterproductive. As most of us have grown up and are living now in an environment where one is talking all the time, or at least most of the time, it seems to be so unnatural and challenging to refrain from talking. In our regular daily life-based uh, world, how much do we value silence? Or how much is silence valued? Whenever I leave the meditation center, be it in Burma or be it here in the West, it is so striking for me to see how silence is a difficult thing for many people to handle. People in their homes often have their radio or their stereo on most of the time. And when they go shopping or when they walk, are walking down to the bus stop, they have to do that with listening to the music on their Walkman. Or when people are together, one is talking all the time. How many people are there who can come together and just sit together quietly, sit together in silence. Because we have been brought up this way, many people cannot stand the silence. Silence has become a threat to us and 
due to its unpleasantness, many try to escape it. Therefore, people talk most of the time, people listen to music, people feed their mind with other sensory inputs like reading, writing, or even eating can be a substitute uh, for silence. In this way, it is as if it's as if our mind is the lobby of a busy hotel with people chattering all the time, coming and going all the time. Or it's like a railway station with passengers arriving and leaving all the time. Rarely is the mind of an ordinary person clear and still. Rarely is the lobby of the hotel empty or the railway station without any passengers. During an intensive meditation retreat, we are inevitably confronted with silence. We find ourselves in a completely empty hotel lobby. How do we respond to this challenge of being in this silent space? Is it easy for us to live and dwell in this silence? Or is this a big challenge for us, driving us ourselves sometimes to the edge? Venerable Tenzin Palmo, an English nun in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, she lived and meditated for 12 years in a cave high up in the Indian Himalayas. During the summer months, she had to um, go down into the valley and collect food. But then for the remaining time, of the year, which meant almost uh, eight months, um, she had to stay in her cave. It was high up on a mountain slope, and so once it started snowing, she had no chance to leave the cave. There was nowhere she could go. She had to stay and live up there in her cave, alone. So there, she lived completely secluded in her cave and doing her meditation practice. There was absolutely no means of communication with others. There was no friend there to speak to. There was no telephone, no, no post office she could go and um, post a letter. So in this way, she lived completely secluded from other people and secluded from a lot of sensory input that could cause desire or craving to arise. There was no other way to deal with the loneliness or the silence than to facing it directly. However big the temptation was, to write to a friend or to call her teacher, there was just no way 
to do so. Even though most of the meditators do not go to such a, a totally secluded place for a retreat, but the attitude should be the same. One should go into retreat with the attitude of going into seclusion. Although here we practice with other people um, meditating and means of communication are available, but we should make a resolution of not engage in any contact, be it with the people around us, with fellow meditators, with staff people, or be it with family members or friends. Of course, um, with the exception of um, emergencies. In one of the suttas, the Buddha said that one should wander alone like a rhinoceros. A rhinoceros is a solitary animal wandering alone in the woods or the jungle. And on top of that, the Indian rhinoceros has only one horn, has a single horn. Um, unlike apparently the African rhinoceros has two horns. And so this imagery that the Buddha used reinforces the notion of being all by ourselves, wandering like a rhinoceros with a single horn alone in the woods, alone in the jungle. And this sutta is called Rhinoceros and it it's contained in the Sutta Nipata, which is a collection of poems. I would like to share a few of the verses there. As a deer in the, in the wilds, unfettered, goes for forage wherever it wants, the wise person valuing freedom wander alone like a rhinoceros. In the midst of companions, when staying at home, when going out walking, you are prey to requests, valuing the freedom that no one else covets, wander alone like a rhinoceros. Because sensual pleasure elegant, honeyed, and charming, bewitch the mind with their manifold forms. Seeing this drawback in sensual strands, wander alone like a rhinoceros. Cold and heat, hunger and thirst, wind and sun, horseflies and snakes, enduring all these without exception, wander alone like a rhinoceros. Eyes downcast, not foot loose, senses guarded with protected mind, not oozing, not burning with lust, wander alone like a rhinoceros. 
Removing ourselves from the busyness of the world and going to a secluded place for retreat is the first level of seclusion. This is called in Pali Kaya Viveka. But this is not yet enough because our mind still finds ways and means to entertain itself when faced with silence or difficult thoughts and emotions. So a further step to go into seclusion, to live secluded, a further step is to restrain our senses and especially our eyes. When they are unguarded, a lot of our concentration and mindfulness that we have built up can be lost in no time. And on top of that, the sensory input that we receive through the eyes causes new distractions and restlessness in our mind. As it is said in the verse that I just recited, eyes downcast, not food loose, senses guarded, with protected mind. To restrain our eyes and have them downcast can be another great support for our meditation practice. I noticed this myself after some months of intensive practice in Burma and therefore I resolved to restrain my eyes that I would to that point that I would always keep them downcast on the ground. So I determined never to look up, never to look into the distance in order to see what was around me. I did that because it was extremely difficult for me not to know what was going on in my environment. And so I really felt that I wanted to overcome this compulsive force and strongly ingrained habit. So, with a sincere inclination of the mind and a strong resolution, I managed to keep this resolve for three months. For example, when I entered the dining hall, I just was aware of the strong desire to know who was there. Or when I bowed down to the front of the dining hall where Chamiye Sayadaw was sitting, um, I just had to know if he was there or not. And so before bowing down, I just note, noted and observed this strong urge or desire to see if he was there or not. But I knew actually it didn't make any difference for me. Or it happened sometimes when I was walking back from the dining hall to the room, I had to cross a little br narrow bridge. And at times it happened that having my eyes downcast, looking about six feet ahead of me, because the bridge was so narrow, I 
I just saw this pair of white sneakers walking past. And Burmese people, they don't wear sneakers. And so I knew that there must be a new foreigner that had, who had arrived. And again, I just felt this compulsive urge to know who this person was, how this person looked like. But having done this resolve, I just was aware of this desire and I didn't give in to this urge of looking up and looking this pace, this person into the face. Somehow it was like I had the responsibility for this newly arrived foreigner. It was definitely not easy to keep this resolve for the three months, but it definitely was a great support for my practice. It helped my mind to settle more and to gain deeper levels of stillness and that in turn led to a greater clarity in my mind. And so then the mind became clearer, more transparent, almost lucid, and the things, objects, appeared to be so clear and uh, sharp. If it seems too daunting to do such a resolve for three months, we can begin with shorter periods of time. The resolve could be not to look up for the time we walk from the meditation hall to the dining hall. Or we could do the resolve for one walking meditation. If that seems um, too much, we could do it just for one stretch of walking down our path trying not to look up, not um, let our eyes stray to the side when something seems to be there in the corner of the eye. At times it can be good and beneficial to dare something new and challenging, as it can open up new horizons for our practice. Unless we do it, we cannot know the benefits from it. Along this line of sense restraint, another helpful tool for our practice is to simplify our actions, to simplify and also to slow down them. By slowing down our actions, movements, while eating, dressing, taking a shower, or drinking a cup of tea, and so forth, we are inevitably confronted with our strong conditioned uh, habitual patterns. And so it immediately brings a greater degree of awareness into our practice. And as a result, we become more focused in the present moment. Even if we think that we are pretty much aware and mindful of the movements involved in eating, for example, we will begin to realize 
that this awareness is quite shallow once we start to slow down our movements. Then we begin to see that the that many of the actions are happening as if by themselves and that there is actually not much conscious awareness of them. And we also start to see that sometimes there are several actions happening at the same time. While we are chewing our food, we may think that we are really fully aware of chewing the food, of that movements of the jaw uh, that are involved in chewing some food. But we might not be aware that at the same time our hand is already gathering the next spoonful of food. Or when we are swallowing the food and if you think we are fully aware of the swallowing, we might not be aware that at the same time our hand is already lifted up to our mouth. Or at other times it can be as we walk towards our room, we think that you're fully aware of walking to our room, fully aware of the steps. And we might not realize that while still walking, our hand is already lifted to grab the door handle. So in this way, we can come to notice, to realize that, that we are actually performing two or even more actions at the same time and not being, being fully aware of that. When I was young, I had the habit of doing many things at the same time. And my mother used to remind me, uh, saying, just, just do one thing after the other, like in Paris. I don't know how this saying came about to be and what it had to do with Paris, <laughs> but that's what I got to hear quite often. One after the other, like in Paris. So anyway, it's good and helpful to do just one thing at a time. Just, for example, chewing the food and being with that movement, with those sensations, until the chewing is completely finished. And then only go to the next action. Or, as we are walking towards our room, can we be just walking and doing nothing else and then come to a still stand and only after that start lifting our hand to grab the handle of the door and open it. In that moment of walking towards the door, there is nothing more important in this world of being aware that we are walking, just being aware of 
the movement of our feet or the body as it is moving forward. The mind can actually be only aware of one thing, one object at a given time. And so to clearly see and clearly penetrate into an object, the mind needs this focused awareness on one single object. So when we start slowing down and just being aware of one thing at a time, then the mind can um, settle down more, become more focused on this very um, moment. And so when the mind is focused and concentrated, then the object can be seen clearly. It becomes very um, sharp and that allows penetrating insight to arise. Later on in the practice, we come to see that all these actions and movements of the different parts of the body, they arise because there is a desire or an intention to do so. All the bodily movements have their origin in the mind. With the restraint of our eyes and with the slowing down of our actions and movements, we can get some indication of how much of how much we are actually aware of the mind. Each time we find ourselves looking around without having done that intentionally, then we come to know that we actually missed this desire to look around, that we missed to observe, to see the intention to do so. Or each time we find ourselves reaching for the glass of water while still chewing the food without having done it intentionally, we come to see that we missed to see, we missed to note this intention of reaching for the glass. The mind is so fast that it can be, that it cannot be compared to anything in the world. There is no comparison to the swiftness of the mind. And therefore, before we reach that level of deep concentration and sharp mindfulness, to be aware of all the tiny movements in the mind, to be aware of all mental objects, we can start with observing and noting physical objects which are more distinct and easier to note in the beginning. In the Abhidhamma it is said that the mind or the mental processes are 17 times faster than the physical processes. That means that in the time of a physical process arising and passing away, there are 17 moments of mind arising and passing away.
when we manage to live in a secluded place and do as much as we can to restrain the, our eyes and uh, reduce the sensory input from the environment, then this will allow for the mind to become secluded. This will allow for citta viveka. This is the second level of seclusion. Citta viveka is the mental seclusion and detachment from sensual objects. Venerable Tenzin Palmo points out to the fact that this second level of seclusion is much more important than the first one. Even if we live alone in a cave for 12 years or 20 years or for the rest of our lives, if we cannot detach ourselves from the attachment to or craving for the sensual objects, then living in a cave serves no purpose. Venerable Tenzin Palmo said, True renunciation is giving up all our well-cherished thoughts, our delight in memories, hope and fantasies. To renounce all this and stay naked in the presence, this is true renunciation. And this is in line with what the Buddha said to one of his monks. <clears throat> this monk was a lone dweller and spoke in praise of dwelling alone. A group of monks reported this to the Buddha and so he told them to go and call this monk. So then this monk came to where the Buddha stayed and after paying respect to him, he sat down. Then the Buddha asked him if it was true that he was a lone dweller and that he was speaking in praise of dwelling alone. And the monk replied that that was true. So then the Buddha wanted to know how he practiced it. And so the monk answered, I enter the village for alms alone. I return alone. I sit alone in a private place. I undertake walking meditation alone. It is in such a way that I am a lone dweller and speak in praise of dwelling alone. Then the Buddha said that this was indeed a way of dwelling alone and that he didn't deny it. But the Buddha continued to explain how this can be fulfilled in greater detail and so he gave him the following instructions. Listen and attend closely to what I say. What lies in the past has been abandoned. What lies in the future has been relinquished and desire and lust for present forms has been thoroughly removed. It is in such a way that dwelling alone is fulfilled 
in greater detail. Can we give up all our well-cherished memories about the past? Can we stop indulging in the futures, in the fantasies about the future? And can we remove the desire and craving for present sense objects? We all have probably come to experience, to experience uh, to a certain degree that when the mind is stripped bare of the usual external sense impressions, that the mind starts to get berserk and that it is trying to compensate with all kinds of thoughts. Any kind of thought then is good enough to fill this vacuum and to fill the mind with some input, to feed it with something. So then the mind comes up with the most unlikely fantasies about the future, or it digs in the past for some memories, or it simply goes over some trivial facts over and over again. When the mind is deprived of its usual input, it is easily content with whatever it gets. At another time, a monk called Migajala came to the Buddha and asked him what was meant by a lone dweller and what was meant by dwelling with a partner. And so the Buddha explained that Delighting in any object perceived by the six senses is called dwelling with a partner. And the Buddha continued to explain that even when a monk was going into the forest or to a remote cave, without abandoning craving, this monk was still called one dwelling with a partner. And then the Buddha explained that not taking delight in any object perceived by the six senses, this is called dwelling alone. And he continued to say that even when a monk lives in the vicinity of a village, associating with monks and nuns, lay followers, uh, other ascetics or teachers, that this monk was still called one dwelling alone because this monk had abandoned craving, craving for the essential objects. It is only with the complete removal and abandoning of these kinds of thoughts that we can speak of a secluded mind. A mind that is absorbed in the jhanas is free from these kinds of thoughts and therefore it can be called a secluded mind. However, this is a temporary state of mental seclusion. As soon as one comes out of the jhana, the mind is again assailed by these kinds of thoughts. 
when we practice vipassana meditation, we are focused on the objects from moment to moment. When this moment-to-moment concentration becomes powerful and strong, it corresponds to a jhanic um, concentration. And therefore, at that time, there is no way for these thoughts to creep in. These thoughts are kept at bay. So then, the mind too in vipassana is secluded from this past, from these thoughts about the past, the future, or the present. When the power of insight becomes penetrating and strong, then it has the capacity to uproot some uh, of the defilements or certain defilements at the moment of past knowledge, which is the moment of attaining one of the stages of enlightenment. Then these particular defilements are uprooted, completely uprooted, once and forever. And so with the fourth and final stage of enlightenment, all the existing defilements have been completely uprooted. And therefore, the perfect, the complete and final seclusion is Nibbana. Only with the attainment of final liberation are we freed or uh, secluded from all kinds of defilements and the resulting suffering. I will end this talk with the words of a deva who approached a monk who was practicing alone out in the woods. The deva realized that this monk was overcome with unwholesome thoughts concerning the household life. Out of compassion for this monk and to arouse a sense of urgency in him, the deva addressed him with the following verses. Desiring seclusion, you entered the woods, yet your mind gushes outwardly. Remove the desire for people, then you'll be happy, devoid of lust. You must abandon discontent, be mindful. Let me let me remind you of the way followed by the good. Hard to cross, indeed, is the dusty abyss. Don't let sensual dust drag you down. Just as a bird littered with soil, with a shake flicks off the sticky dust, so a bhikkhu, strenuous and mindful, with a shake flicks off the sticky dust. Let's sit quietly for a few moments.
May all beings' hearts be free from any dust and become fully liberated. Now let's chant the sharing of blessings. <coughs> now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease, and all harmful states of mind, until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth, May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.